Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. And as always I hope you enjoy the narration and if you do please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 365 March of an Empire Hundreds of boots crashed on the soft, melting ice underneath the feet as lines and lines of blue-cladded soldiers marched tirelessly forward. Dozens and dozens of covered wagons pulled by beasts following along behind the soldiers. Flags and banners hang limply under the absence of the breeze while the drummer boys tap a sorrow beat. The dragon cry in the skies caught the attention of the soldiers and officers riding on land dragons. Heads turn up towards the noise coming from the skies while a couple medium-weight dragons flapped their mighty wings and approached the dots in the sky to investigate. Dragon Rider Smyrdas, the first Imperial Dragon Corps, yanks the reins hard on each dragon. Starlight, a medium-weight silver wing. Each dragon gave out a roar of acknowledgement, then the beast's wings towards its dots slowly appearing before it. As the dragon is struggling to gain altitude, the rumbling noise grows louder and louder, and the dragon rider Smyrdas, using a magic spell to concentrate the air before his fingers, brings the dark spots closer into focus. He frowns as the jerky images show him something like a cross of some sort, and there was not just one of them, but this time the strange flying crosses were almost directly above his head, and yet uh, Starlight could not reach them at the same height as them. Smerdis could only watch with the strange objects flew past him at a speed far greater than what the silver-winged dragon could achieve, and he and his dragon could only fruitlessly follow behind. Even his wingmate could not do anything, and they were only observed the strange flying objects flying over the marching army with confusion. Wait, one of those? Smerdis cried out as he noticed black objects propping down from the flying crosses. He, quickly, using the sigil spell, and saw dozens of egg-like objects warring off the flying crosses. What in the heaven are those things? His eyes glued to the far sight spell followed the fall of one such egg, which it turned into a flash of flames and a ball of thick black smoke as it impacted the ground next to a column of marching soldiers. He saw the toy-like figures flattened down next to the blast before the smoke covered them. Smirdis stared in helpless horror as there was not just one explosion, as more and more eggs landed on the land that was carpeted with flames and smoke. 317 kilometers from Orwell's point. Seagull 1 RTB, the co-pilot's face covered in oxygen masks, spoke muffled into the radio as the newly upgraded FB-1 Mariner, with the new and more powerful engines, tilted its wings over and did a long loop over the area of operations. Tiny craters of smoke and flame could be seen all over the whitish scenery. The passage of the Imperial soldiers easily left a dark lines in the melting snow, making the whole scene look like someone drew lines with a pencil that ended in blobs of ink and white paper. Dragons, ten o'clock low. The gunner yelled in the comms. Two of them, do we engage? Air Force pilot Gul'dan leaned over the cockpit to look in the direction indicated by the gunner, seeing the winged serpents easily over the backdrop of the snow. Nay, they can't catch us with their current speed and heading, but keep your fingers ready on the triggers, just in case. Aye. All right, I think we just made some of the blue boys have a bad day. Gul'dan grinned as he turned the bomber towards the correct heading. Let's go home and pick up some more presents for the next group. He checked his wheel gauge, nothing, went down to the mount left on his notepad strapped to his knee before double-checking his map and compass. An hour plus, and we're home. Gul'dan wondered when he would get to fly the new heavy transport plane that he and the rest of the pilots had heard rumors of. 
It was said to be larger, faster, and more fuel and load capacity compared to the FB-1. He loved flying the Mariner. It might not be as agile as the F-1 Cobras, but as a bomber, it sure delivers a heavy punch on its enemies. Now, the new rumors of a new type of plane, which will carry 20mm and 105mm cannons on its sides, he wondered how it would fly such a plane. The bomber wing droned on as the soon passed over the ruins of Norsholm. Gul'dan peeked over the snow-covered ruins that had thousands and thousands of people burnt and buried in it, and also the site of one of the worst disasters for the marines. He sighed, thinking of the mad goddess that caused such a calamity. He used to worship some gods and believed in their teachings. Now, the only thing he believed in was his plane, his crew, and his mechanics. Finally, after crossing the dead city, the glittering reflections of the Soul Sea came into view. His co-pilot started fiddling with the radio communication. Dragon Roost, Dragon Roost, Seagull Flight, ETA to your location, 15 mics, how copy? Dragon Roost, Roger, we are picking your transponder up on the radar, over. Roger, Dragon Roost, Seagull Flight, out. Gul'dan reduced the altitude of the mariner till the Betty and the flying boat was just over the waves of the island freshwater sea. The powerful engines kicked up a small trail of water behind them, and soon the seaplane tender came to view of the Gul'dan, gently eased the flying boats down onto the water, reducing speed. The waters were thankfully calm enough to not jolt the rapidly slowing mariner with much force. Gul'dan expertly drifted the mariner, making the flying boats turn and stop just meters away from the ex-imperial barge-turned-seaplane tender. Like the floating city, the ex-imperial barges were connected together, forming a sort of floating rig. Cranes and hoists stood out from the hulls to service the flying boats, while inside the barges were filled with fuel and bombs. The crew on the seaplane tender started tossing lines over to secure the flying boats while the cranes swung out, dropping the refueling holuses that Gul'dan's crew accepted after they climbed out from the top hatches and stood on the wings of the top of the mariner. A larger cargo hatch opened from the top of the mariner just behind the gun turret, where another crane started hoisting 250-kilogram bombs over to the crew to load into the bomb racks. Gul'dan shut down all systems of the mariner and stretched his body. A technician rapped on the side of the cockpit window and he opened up the top hatch, accepting the orders and the checklist given to him. All right, looks like we've got three hours of downtime before the next mission, Gul'dan read before handing the checklist to his co-pilot. Let's get the plane rearmed and refueled before we take a break, and then it's back to business. 482 kilometers away from Orwell's Point, city of Silverstone. Governor Silverstone was constantly wiping beads of perspiration coming from his balding head with a stented handkerchief. He kept his head lowered as the Empress sat quietly on the throne that was brought along with the Emperor's entourage. The silence in the Great Hall only made the sense of dread worse as the ministers and generals stood silently, waiting for the Emperor's bidding. Finally, the Emperor spoke. How many times has this happened? The unlucky commander cleared his throat and glanced at the sides, but seeing no support from anyone, could only step forward and report. Nine times, my Emperor. Nine times? The Emperor repeated the word softly. Nine times. Yet no one, no dragon, no mage, was able to come to it. No, my Emperor, the commander said nervously. It came from nowhere and without warning from the skies. It was faster than our fastest dragons and flew higher than any dragon capable of doing so. The dragon outriders all reported it had some sort of flying cross that dropped eggs that exploded upon impact out the ground, and it was a hundred times more potent than our firebombs, the commander reported. 
The magic barriers put up by the mages were barely able to hold off a single one of these fire eggs. Silence was once again in the great hall as the emperor fell into silence. The governor of Sultan wiped his sweat nervously again. How do those things know where to strike? My emperor, the commander said, it is not hard to spot the army over a hundred thousand moving over the lands. And how many soldiers have we lost? The emperor Varrican asked. Close to four thousand, my emperor, the commander replied. We did the best we could to save as many soldiers and supplies as possible. The commander added, We have switched the movement of the Imperial Army tonight and in smaller groups to hide from the flying crosses, and so far it seems to work. Our losses have decreased. Decreased? The Emperor Varrican smirked. I want no losses. Find a way to destroy these things, or I'll find someone to replace you. Yes, my Emperor. The commander and the generals all bowed quickly and departed, leaving behind the governor. You... The emperor snapped his fingers. Bring me some pretty girls. I want them now. Yes, yes, my emperor. The governor quickly bowed and ran off to do the emperor's bidding. At once. Cursed rebels. The emperor Varrican hissed. I must have the heritage of the gods. UN Seacliff Mines, Dungeon Level 4. Thunderous barks of firearms echoed sharply throughout the stone and dirt corridors. Hitsu took a deep breath of air and filled the bitter chemical smell and grinned as he reloaded the forty-five submachine gun in his hands. He and the rest of the 101st Arcane Tactics and Intervention, Team Claymore 1, was doing a weapons test and evaluation inside the depths of the dungeon. The long corridor of Level 4 dungeon was temporarily converted into a firing range. Hitsu stood behind a wooden folding table piled with magazines and spent casings of forty-five caliber was firing at advancing minotaurs. The horned beasts, which the humans said looked like a half-cow, half-man, made Hitsu wonder if the humans' cows were some kind of monstrous beast. The minotaurs charged over the fallen bodies of their comrades while roaring a challenge. They held a double-bladed moon axes in both hands and their hooves kicked up like sparks over the floor as they charged. Hitsu placed the sights of the SMG directly over the chest of the leading minotaur and fired in three-round bursts. The heavy forty-five slugs slamming into the minotaur, knocking it back on its hooves and sending it crashing with others. The minotaur shook its head and rubbed its hairy chest, where the rounds had impacted and coughed up some blood. But other than that, it didn't seem to be badly wounded at all. I got it, Altier said as he fired the fifty caliber machine gun as he had set it up on a tripod. The powerful rounds ripped the minotaur to bloody shreds and then there was just a ringing silence. Well, the forty-five rounds are just so-so, I guess, Hitsu said as he reloaded. But it is fun to shoot, especially at level three of the dungeon, Loke said. Those zombies went pop-pop-pop. All right, quit clowning around, Tyria called out. Remember to note down your observations and comments. He walked over the mangled minotaur's bodies and poked the corpses. Well, the new forty-five rounds may not have much penetration power, but it sure does stop a minotaur in its tracks. Make ready, I can hear more minotaurs, Tyria yelled. It's time to fire only the 45s, I want to see if we can kill the minotaur just using a 45 rounds. End of chapter. Chapter 366, Dance Steps of War. UN Fortress Singapore, Command Bridge. We have several confirmed reports of the enemy movement among the laws and borders. Intel Officer Tavar reported to the senior military officers. Our early efforts at using high-altitude bombings on the Imperial troops and supply lines were initially a success, but the Empire had adapted quite fast, 
Hence, the later results were lackluster. The Imperial troops had dispersed themselves into smaller units and had spread out instead of clustering them, Tabar continued. There's a good and bad to this. The good is that it slows the Imperial army down and making their logistic and coordination a nightmare. Not to mention, chances of desertion, getting lost, or even the troops dragging their feet were high. The bad is that it makes it harder for our bombers to hit them, Tevar said, and it makes gathering intelligence for their ready point hard to predict till they are right in our face. So, now we are getting at least nine hotspots of Imperial troops, Tevar gestured to the map on the tactical plot. Problem is, some of those hotspots are faked. The Imperials have learned a lot about subterfuge and hiding in this month. We have found that using a glimmer magic to hide the troops is in the open, Tevar explained. They have even resorted to using dummies and supply wagons pulled with straw to divert our airstrikes. And we can't continue relying on the UAVs, Commander Tommy added. They are already starting to break down due to we you overusing them as well over service life. Not to mention, we have to run the UAVs up and down the border to check out every hot spot and intel of possible staging area of the Blue Boys. But we have plans to remove the sensor packages from the Allies once they've reached the end of their service life and install them into the FB-1 Mariners, turning the plane into a kind of reconnaissance aircraft with airborne early warning and control installed, the Air Force commander said. In other words, Table continued off, it's a spy plane with an AWAC capabilities. Blake nodded. I'm happy to know that the guys are taking the initiative to handle our problems, but the issue now is how do we handle the enemy? Blake wrapped his fingers on the tactical map, highlighting the areas where sightings of the Imperial troops were reported. They are within a hundred kilometers zone of the northern border, which more sightings being reported constantly. Our UAVs can't run constantly to investigate all the hotspots, nor can we afford to waste munitions hitting decoy locations, Blake said before pointing to a blue icons next to the city of Full Edge. We got two battalions already stationed here and another two more at Orwell's Point and another two battalions are in reserve between the two cities. Blake traced down his finger. Our numbers are too low to hold any stretch of land. The Imperials outnumber us still and can easily maneuver around any fixed defenses we have. We need bait. Blake looked at the commanders. Just so juicy that the enemy has no choice but to bite it. Problem now is what kind of bait would be so attractive to the Imperials? Northern border of the UN the land was filled with clumps of forest and open ground with tall, waving grasses. Low, rolling hills dotted the scenery and would make a great social media spot for tourists. Through the casual eye, the land was empty, except for a large blob of shimmering heat wave that floated on the surface of the land. Yet another shimmer wave, colorful flags and banners fluttered in the wind of blue being the dominant colors. Boots and weapons were bound with cloth and muffled the metal, while the drums and trumpets were silent. Majors sat on top of wagons that were sweating under the intense concentration of maintaining spells that hide the marching army, while the sergeants and corporals hissed in low voices to the soldiers to maintain their formation and lower the noise where they were making. Occasionally, the soldiers would peer into the skies, hoping not to spot any flying cross demons in the sky. They prayed feverishly as they marched, praying for the guards to protect them from the flying demons. Some of the soldiers had seen the destruction of the flying creatures, while others heard rumors of the flying demons used to the rebels. They felt naked, especially since their dragons couldn't even do anything against them, and worse, the dragons had been pulled back to the front lines. 
The Imperial commanders had learnt a lot after getting attacked and harassed constantly by the Flying Cross demons. They had learnt not to travel in tightly packed formations, how to hide and camouflage the soldiers and even not to set a campsite in the open. At night, having light was dangerous as those demons would zero in on the campfires and tortures of the soldiers. These lessons were learnt in blood and deaths of hundreds and hundreds of Imperial soldiers but this made their campaign timeline a nightmare for the quartermasters and commanders. Soldiers had to be split up into smaller groups, as did the supply wagons. Soldiers and wagons got lost or went overwhelmed by mobs of feral goblins or monsters, which came out in mass numbering during spring. Trying to coordinate and keep track of where everyone was made all the carefully crafted plans of the commanders. Units were lost and confused as they tried to resupply, only to find out that they were in the wrong camp. It messed up with the plans of the Imperials, but it also reduced the number of casualties from the Flying Cross Demons. The original plans of the Imperials were to commit the four-prong attack. Two armies would move simultaneously down to the last known stronghold of the rebels and stop to resupply the border town of Edge. It was only till later that last month of winter that they found out that the town of Edge had fallen to the rebels, making the Imperials change their plans to instead attack Edge first. Another army went straight to Orwell's Point, while the water-based fleet coming in from the Ariel's coastal town, which will land in sailors and soldiers, and making the overland march directly and attack Orwell's Point together. Yet, all the plans were delayed by the sudden appearance of the Flying Crosses, which the soldiers all referred to as the Flying Demons. And the Emperor's fury was mounting. The generals and commanders finally came out with a new plan and that was to split the army into sub-armies which were large enough to hold against the wild monsters and goblins, but small enough to avoid the flying demons and attack the two cities held by the demon-worshipping rebels. Northern Border of the UN Observation Post Number 37 Yak, son of Yar, the Hand Tribe, now an official marine of the UN, leaned on his beefy arms against the lip of the dugout. His non-regulation uniform had its sleeves ripped off at the shoulders, leaving his gray-gray-toned arms bare. Yak wore his extra-large size standard issue and one helmet as a jitty angle while his buddy, a soft-skinned called Romeo, was scanning the horizon with a pair of binoculars. Yak was bored. It had been days, yet there was nothing to be seen or even heard. The lieutenant gave them a briefing about the Empire sending down thousands and thousands of soldiers to wage war with the UN, yet nothing had happened so far. Ah, bored, he grumbled to his buddy who signaled back. No soft skins to kill. Yes, I know, his buddy Romia replied with a dead tone. You've been grumbling for the past two days. Well, as they join the marines, see new places, meet new people, Yak growled, and kill them. But we join, now a new place, but meet no new people. It's a joke, Romia sighed. Anyway, just one more day and our duties is up. You can watch your favorite movies back at camp. Oh. Yak instantly cheered up. I want to watch Lord of the Rings. Heard many orcs inside. Hey. Ramia suddenly paused in his actions. Hey, I see something. Gibby. Yak reached over and took the binoculars from Romeo. Your soft skin's eyes weak. Orkin better eyes. Prettier, too. Ah, fuck you. Romeo rolled his eyes and went back to check the radio set. Hmm. Yak frowned. See nothing. Look towards your right more, Romeo said. I thought I saw some flags. Yak slowly scanned the view towards the right. He had seen amazed by the device which allowed one to have the sight of many, many times greater. If previously his tribe had such a far-sight device, maybe the tribe would have prospered greatly. 
I see nothing, Yak mumbled. I, no, wait. Yes, strange, very strange. You saw it? Romeo asked as he pushed the antenna of the radio set up as he was taught. Hmm, it's gone, Yak round. Wait, it's back, yes. It's a flag. No, wait, many flags. Imperial, Yak growled excitedly. Glimmer spell. OP-37 to Nova Command. We got contact. Repeat, this is OP-37. Imperial troops spotted. Saucy, UNS Dragon Roost. Without the mariners crowding around the service cranes and floating tender, the UNS Dragon Roost was actually a pretty relaxing posting. Four ex-Imperial river barges were interconnected together by a series of steel-welded bridges creating a simple and stable floating platform. In the middle of the four hulls sat a couple of PT boats, with one of them converted into a passenger transport. With most of its weapons removed, it had enough seats to ferry an additional 20 passengers. It was dragged over by PT boat before it dropped its anchor and provided a refueling and rearming station for both ships and aircraft of the UN. Its presence helped extend the UN ships and planes in the area. As usual, the freshwater sea was calm when the wind was down. The flying boats, which the UNS Dragon Roost serviced, were out in a call to hit some targets and would only return in a few hours. Most of the crew were having their downtime. Some were even fishing for their dinner on the side of the hulls. Even looking out, the tower dozed off his watch as he gently bobbed motion of the waves made him sleepy. The lookout yawned and rubbed his eyes and leaned against the side of the tower and idly watched the others fishing on the side. A sudden draft of strong wind blew and rocked the tower slightly and the lookout quickly held himself stable. As he did that, he caught sight of several white clouds on the water horizon. He picked up the binoculars and his eyes grew in horror as the clouds turned into sails belonging to dozens and dozens of Imperial ships. Oh, fuck! Contact! Contact! He yelled as the speaker horn on the side of the tower while he jammed his fingers hard as he could into the siren horn. A sharp, ear-splitting bellow came out from the siren, shocking the rest of the crew as they stared up at the watchtower. They saw the figures of the lookout pointing, and they turned before the senior NCO yelled at them to get to their battle stations. Stop gawking, you pieces of crap! The enemy is here! Get to your stations now! The shaken crew quickly leapt into action and ran off, most of them half-dressed as they manned their stations. Contact! Imperial ship sighted! The lookout yelled again as he started counting the number of Imperial ships that he could see with his binos. Oh, crap. We're farking screwed. End of chapter. Chapter 367. Lead Prisoners. The roar of the 50 calibers and the deeper boom of the 20mm guns thundered out constantly as curious Imperial fleets came within firing range of the surprised floating tender. The tender, unable to maneuver, could only hold its ground fiercely, forcing the Imperial ships back. The crew of the UNS Dragon Roost did not expect to encounter any Imperial presence out here, and neither did the mission planners back in HQ. It was an intelligence oversight that the mission planners had not anticipated. Thankfully, the dockyard boulders had added several mounts for heavy weapons to repel any air attacks or ships. This decision proved to help the crew fend off the probing Imperial fleet. The PT boat docked with the connected hulls was quickly released out from its mooring, and the PT boat crew quickly added its firepower alongside the UNS Dragon Roost. The squadron of curious Imperial ships that were sent over to investigate the strange floating vessel was engulfed in flames as the UN Navy had standardized its ammunition with more incendiary rounds after the experience fighting the local powers that mainly had ships made of wood and cloth sails. 
The 50 caliber guns, with its armor-piercing tracer and incendiary mix of ammunition, easily broke and ignited the large flat-bottomed ships of the Imperials, while the heavier 20mm, with its mix of tracer, high explosives and incendiary munitions, battered down the magic shields of the Imperials till they broke too. The five ships of the Imperials slowly burned down to their waterline, while the rest of the Imperial fleet retreated away. Unwilling to come close to such a fearsome enemy, giving the crew of the UNS Dragon Ruth some respite. Their only two FA 1s and C Cobras were returning with all haste with their scouting mission to provide some air cover, while the airbase said Orwell's Point was mobilizing all of its fighter squadrons for an all out attack on the Imperial fleet. UN Northern Border OP number 37. OP-372 Nova, request fire mission on my coordinates, Private Romia, crouched down inside the foxhole and spoke each word as clearly as possible into the radio while Private Yak remained with his head out to observe the approaching Imperials that shimmered in and out of view. Nova, 237, standby, directing you over to fire control, out. Fire control, 37, send fire mission, over. Romia quickly read off the numbers and alphabets and the grids and the map before he leaned out of the lip of the Fergus box hall, which had covered under the camouflage net. Battalion size or larger, infantry in the open, under magic, over. Fire control, 155 in effect, 5 rounds, over. Up, 37, 155 in effect, 5 rounds, out. Romia repeated while eyeing Yak who gave a happy grin. Fire control, shot over. The radio cackled after a moment. Up, 37, shot out. Romia replied as he took the binos and observed the Imperials. Fire control, splash, and five, over. The shrills of the Marines' new heavy arsenal screamed over the two forward observers' heads as they landed them in explosions of smoke. Three-seven splash, out. Romia yelled into the radio as the shockwaves of the 155mm artillery strike landed around the coordinates given by him. He recovered and quickly scanned the area for the effect of the artillery strike. Very nice. Yak gave a bloodthirsty grin and giggled as he saw the Imperial's magical spells had broke under the might of the 155mm guns. Bodies were scattered all over like broken toys, while those not killed by the initial bombardment stood or knelt around in shock. Op 37 to fire control, adjust fire. At 250, left 100, over. Fire control, shot, over. 37, shot, out. Fire control, splash, in five, over. Three, seven, splash, fire for effect, out. Yak hummed a ditty as he watched the plight of the Imperials under the merciless pounding of the five-five guns and felt super satisfied. That's getting easy business, I like. No marching or sweating, just like watching show. Very nice. Ball Edge, Northern Front and Nova Command Headquarters. Colonel Frank frowned as he watched the staffers move wooden markers depicting Imperial troop sightings all over the map table. Several of those markers even had question marks drawn in a piece of cardboard and placed next to the markers to indicate those sightings as unverified. For those with verified intel, the numbers and symbols were drawn on cards, and the numbers indicated that the number of soldiers while the symbols were the type of troops, like infantry or mounted cavalry. He watched a radio operator hand a note off to one staff responsible to update the table, and a female staff placed a red number card to one of the repeal tokens with a question mark. Next, she placed a well-carved icon of a fighter plane next to the red card. Frank walked to the side and checked through the pile of records and found the number that matched the red card earlier. 
He read the report of the sighting of the Imperial Chutes cameoed by the Magic Observation Point 37 and the subsequent artillery strike which wiped out the spotted troops, followed by the flight of Cobras performing aerial recon in the area. Frank turned to his command staff and said, Send the mechanized platoon to check out the aftermath of the artillery strike, see if there's any survivors, especially someone high-ranking, and bring them back. We need some live intel. Source C, Imperial Grand Fleet. The Grand Fleet Admiral was livid as he watched the burning carcasses of five of his frigates. He kicked away the kneeling slave mage who provided a far-sight spell. He had been briefed with the other high-ranking commanders of the Emperor involving the demon-worshipping rebels who had gotten their hands in some kind of fragment from the Age of the Gods, granting them some kind of thunder and fire magic weapon. Yet, hearing it and experiencing its effects in real life were totally different. The Admiral, frowning as he watched the strange large rebel vessel which seemed to be made out of a few river barges with cranes or towers or some sort of sticking out from its many sides. Thankfully, he did not commit his entire fleet forward and kept all but the unfortunate squadron back. He wondered should he retreat his fleet more, in case those cursed thunder weapons could hit his fleet, which was keeping a distance of over twice the effective range of the heavy ballista. There was also a strange small vessel circling around the rebels' abominating-looking vessels that he had read some reports on which said they could sail so fast it could only be powered by some demonic entity. Should he order the dragons on board his fleet to launch an attack, thought the Admiral, or should he probe more of the enemy's strength and see if he can find any weaknesses? After pondering for a moment, he turned to his officers and said, Launch half the dragons, we shall attack that ship by the air. Have the second frigate and the third stand by to charge in once the rebels' attention has spoken on the dragons. Try not to destroy the enemy ship completely. I want prisoners. We need to find out how the thunder weapons work, the Admiral ordered the officers. If we learn the secrets to the weapons, we will be invincible. Saucy, UNS Dragon Roost Lieutenant Tally was a commanding officer and the skipper in charge of the Dragon Roost. The Dragon Roost was supposed to be in an area where no danger at all, yet the Imperial fleet suddenly appeared out of nowhere. He had radioed back to Orwell's point for help, and it would take some time to scramble the fighters for support. As for his crew... There were a few naval officers and sailors, but the rest were just civilian support staff who outsourced the civilian contractors by the Navy. Thankfully, they were the same installed weapons which limited the Navy personnel had trained in. He eyed the Imperial ships in the distance. There were over 30 of them, estimated by the last count. He had ordered the gunners to hold fire against the Imperials, and he did not want to expose the range of his weapons, and besides, hitting something over half a kilometer away without a proper gun director system was just a waste of munitions. He knew, despite the limited amount of onboard weapons of the UNS Dragon Roost, it could fend off an attack from the Imperial fleet. But half its holds were filled with flammable fuel, and other half was filled with bombs and ammunition for refueling the PT boats and seaplanes. If... There was a leak or a fire into the protected holds. Even if it's both physical and magically protected, it would still go boom. And not only that, the UNS Dragon Roost was just a floating platform. It does not have any propulsion, and the only means of moving in the water was by a tow line to a PT boat, and even so, it moves very slowly in the water due to its bulk and design. Tally prayed that the Imperials would not start any attack till these reinforcements arrived. If not... It was going to be a very bad day, as he saw dark dots taking off from the Imperial ships. Oh, fuck this! It was somewhat raining dragons, thought Seaman Apprentice Astus, 
Estes had remained on the crow's nest with an old M1 black powder rifle and a bondolier of ammunition. He felt that he had his duty, especially for falling asleep during duty. Therefore, to redeem himself, he remained in the tower. The constant thunderous sparks of the 50 cal guns were sending the lightweight dragons to their deaths in droves. These dragons had only a single rider armed with either a long lance, javelins, crossbows, or bow. They swooped down from the skies, tossing javelins or loosing bolts of arrows as they dived down, and the heavy spearhead of the javelins had enough force to punch through the areas where the wooden decks were thin. Already, a couple of javelins were dangling from Astus's lookout tower. The hard pyramidal tip of the javelins had a shank of soft iron which would bend after impact. It would render his weapons useless to the enemy, and also if struck against shields or scales of a dragon, it might embed itself and bending of the shank would cause shields to be cumbersome, while if it struck a dragon, it would hamper the dragon down to an extra weight. Astus cursed as another javelin flew past him, and he snapped fired his rifle. The dirty grey gun smoke shrouded out the tower for a moment before the sea breeze carried the smoke away. He saw the dragon that he was shot at as unaffected, and he quickly worked the bolt action on the proper aim this time, as he was taught at the Naval Academy. Without anyone throwing the dangerous things at him for a moment, Astus could finally concentrate and fire. When the smelly, dirty gun smoke disappeared, he saw the dragon he shot was struggling in the air. Blood clearing was dripping off from its flank. Yeah! He laughed as he turned around to acquire another target, when he suddenly felt a punch in his chest. He looked down and saw a bent javelin stuck out of his chest, nailing him to the platform. The dragon rider who threw the well-aimed javelin cried out in triumph as the dragon swooped over his head. Astus coughed and blood spluttered out. He slumped down on the side and watched as the dragons in the skies continued to rain down in droves. I am sorry. End of chapter. Chapter 368 It is inevitable. Saucy Imperial Grad Fleet. The Admiral stood on the top deck, viewing the action of the dragons and the two five-ship squadrons of frigates sneaking towards the rebel ships with a frown on his face. Though the use of the Farsight spell, he could clearly see that the lightweight dragons were dropping like flies from the defensive weapons of the rebels. His grand fleet of a total of eight dragon ships, each dragon ship could pack a total of either 28 lightweights, eight medium weights, or two heavyweight dragons in their supply for food and crew. He had six of each dragon ships carrying lightweights and one ship of each medium weights and heavyweight dragons for a total of 160 lightweight dragons, eight medium weight dragons, and two heavies, alongside his 36 ship fleet of almost 18,000 satyrs and soldiers. Yet, despite the formidable force, it was stopped by a single vessel of the rebels. His grand fleet could not advance without destroying or capturing the rebel vessel, which single-handedly raised down five frigates and dozens of dragons without any signs of damage. Send in the fifth heavy frigate squadron, the commanded. Seconds later, a series of drums and horns sounded, and the fifth heavy frigate squadron responded by returning the bellowing of horns and unfurling the sails. The three ships of the fifth heavy and battering rams equipped with bows the ships. The teams of slaves manned the oars and the ship's majors threw a wind spell against the sails, propelling the ships forward across the water's surface rapidly. Captain, the lookout on the mast called out suddenly, look, flying demons. Everyone jerked their heads up in the direction of the lookout and called several dots in the sky growing larger by the second. The admiral turned to his staff and ordered, Release the rest of the dragons! Blend off those flying demons! 
Another series of horns and drums were sounded, and the dragon ships at the rear slowly responded to the commands. The dragon ship of the Imperials were huge, almost twice the size of the Admiral's flagship. It had a series of cage-like structures on the decks and were almost to the waterline with the rope cranes that were along with the middle of the ship facing outwards. Inside each cage hosted a dragon with the rope-like cranes winched open and the top of the cage, and the dragon with the crew's board leapt into the skies and took off in charge, straight at the approaching flying demons. Saul C. Dagger Flight Dagger lead to all daggers. The lead pilot of the squadron of FA-11C Super Cobras gunned his throttle to the max as he spotted a burst of activity amongst the Imperial ships. The older Cobras had their engines replaced with the newer, more powerful engines while their airframes were reinforced. Break and engage the hostiles. Long, leathery wings erupted from the Imperial ships like monster bats from hell, and the souped-up fighters of the UN 10th Fighter Wing operated out of Orwell's Point, split into pairs, and the skies turned into chaos as beasts and machines fought for supremacy. The upgraded Super Cobras proved to be very efficient dragon hunters, as it had both the speed and agility to outfly the Imperial Dragons. The 20mm gun pods ripped the lightweight dragons apart easily, while the weapons of the Imperials barely had any chance to score any damage on the agile biplanes. O point to all fighters, protect the UNS Dragon Roost at all cost. Dagger flight to escort UNS Dragon Roost, the rest, own time, own targets. Dagger lead, roger. Night lead, roger. Silver lead, roger. Dragger flight, warm up over UNS Dragon Roost, protect the ship. The lead pilot ordered, and he looped his fighter over the besieged ship. There were several grey-green dragons swooping all over the ship and aimed the fighter straight at one of the dragons that were putting away from the sky as it dived back. He kept his crosshairs in front of the target and squeezed the trigger, sending a short burst of 20mm shells downrange before his flight speed overtook the target and he had to pull the fighter up. He leaned backwards and saw the broken dragon doing a small cartwheel amongst the waves before disappearing under the water. Dagger lead to all daggers. Keep rid of all the Imperial dragons around the UNS Dragon Roost. Saul C. UNS Dragon Roost. Lieutenant Tally nervously watched the approaching Imperial ships and looked larger than the rest of the encircling them, and he turned to yell at the bridge crew. Get the UNS rider to tow us away from the enemy. Tally was referring to the PT boat that turned ferry for the crew. Raise the anchors. Those new approaching ships look like trouble. The small boat crew braved the raining projectiles and quickly started up the engines of the ferry. The barriers keeping the small boat raised up and allowed the boat to scoot out from the open waters. A tow line secured the boat to the flooding dock stretching out tautly and a cloud of dirty smoke erupted from the engines as the boat crew gunned the engines to the max. The floating dock groaned as the ferry engines strained to pull the whole dock along. Lieutenant Tally turned to his crew and yelled again, Get the UNS killer to add another tow line! He turned and looked back at the fast-approaching Imperial ships, spotting a suspicious wake before the ships. Oh crap, they've got battering rams. Tell all the guns to engage those ships immediately, he roared. Destroy those ships. Foreledge, a some back alley in Merchant District. Psst. A cloaked figure hissed from the shadows at a portly figure with two hawking guards beside him. Over here. Party figure gingerly walked over the filth that covered the back alley and came before the person who was face covered in low hood. You got the goods? Yes, the hooded figure nodded. You, the gold? Here, the merchant gestured to his men who held out a bag and shook it, letting the coins jingle inside. The hooded figure nodded as he furtively glanced around the surroundings before he picked up a long object, rolled in an oilcloth. Here, 
The merchant took the object and was surprised by its weight. He gave a heft before ripping the oilcloth away to reveal a long metal barrel with a wood stock at the end. Is this a thunderstick called a rifle? The hooded figure nodded and held out his hand. The merchant gestured to his men who dropped a bag of coins into his palm while the hooded figure quickly ran off. The merchant ignored the seller and posed with the rifle in his hands. He mimicked the actions he saw the soldiers doing with the weapon and was quite impressed with the workmanship. Now, it was time for him to make a killing at the auction houses. UNS Northern Front Command HQ Colonel Frank glanced around the gathered commanders. Those not physically able to attend were instead using video conferencing from their respective command posts along the Northern Front. So far, the Imperials have done us a small favor, which is splitting the troops into smaller contingents. There's good and there's bad to it, Frank said. Good means that they can't muster the strength of numbers to break our fortified positions. The bad means that they can slip troops through our northern fronts as we do not have the numbers to cover everywhere. Captain Joseph's image nodded. Yes, sir, but we can filter the worse off and let the SDF settle the leaks. Hell... This is our home ground, Joseph added. If they can sneak past our defenses, let them. We have the uncharted forest to act as a natural deterring force, Joseph grinned. Unlike us, who have mapped out the most of the forest and now have working comms inside the forest, Imperials will be lost and the denizens of the forest will do the rest for us too. The rest of the battalion COs nodded in agreement. That's right. So our plan is to allow Imperials to leak into the forest, Frank asked. We can control the number of Imperials flowing into the forest, Joseph said. We hit anything larger than a battalion-sized force and let the rest through. But what if the Imperials found a way to link up in the forest, Frank asked. If their numbers are large enough to threaten any villages or towns at the forage edge, it would be disastrous for us. Yes, but if we evacuate the people living around the edge of the forest, the SDF could deal with any number of Imperials that may make it through, Joseph recommended. Plus, with two battalions, marines, and reserves at the rear, they could mobilize to support any breached areas. Frank nodded. We will follow the plan for now, till the situation changes. And speaking about the SDF, the police and intelligence officers had arrested another ten SDF members, including three marines selling their firearms to both local and foreign traders. These have been going on since last month, Frank said in an angry voice. The local SDF, under wartime conditions in your area of operations, falls under your commands. This has to stop, Frank hissed. I can understand it if it was the SDF selling weapons illegally, but we are Marines. We are more disciplined than the SDF. The law states that anyone dealing with the sale of firearms without government approval has a punishment of life imprisonment, Frank said in a serious tone. And any military personnel found to be selling weapons illegally will face the penalty of death. It saddened me to say this, Frank sighed. Those three, once they were convicted, will face a firing squad, and High Command wants the death penalty to be broadcasted live to every armed force branch in the UN as a lesson. Every Marine must watch it and know the consequences of such an action. From now on, I want stricter controls and checks on the armory and personal arms of everyone. Frank glared at his commanders, including every single round of ammunition, grenade, and RPG are to be properly audited, inventoried, and physically accounted for. Also, check every merchant coming out of the cities for weapons, parts, or munitions, Frank said. High Command has decreed that no firearms or ammunition must be traded out. They are our highest military secrets. Yes, sir, the battalion CEO snapped to attention and chorused together. Dismissed. Frank sighed after all the commanders left the conference area. 
He recalled the talk with Captain Blake regarding the issue of the weapons ending up in the hands of other nations. Captain Blake had said that it was almost impossible to stop any single one firearm to be bought by the traders and merchants. Greed will always overwhelm common sense and people will take risks. Captain Blake had further said that it is inevitable that their weapons will end up in the hands of the enemies or even allies sooner or later. So the only thing they could do was to delay the inevitability as long as possible. Frank was not worried about their enemies from learning the secrets of their firearms. Even if they did so, they would still need years and years of efforts to replicate their weapons. And not only that, without industrialization and mass production, no enemy could match up with the industrial might of the UN. The police and the intel had managed to recover back a few of the sold weapons, but still, a few had slipped between their hands and was out there somewhere to be sold off to their enemies. End of chapter. And that, my friends, is the end of this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the channel. There are numerous links down below. The easiest way would be to share this video and this channel to as many people as possible to help this channel grow. Your support is very much appreciated. And I will see you all in the next video. Cheers.